And Lord, we just pray that you are praised to the ends of the earth. But Lord, our every responsibility is here and it's with us personally. And I pray, Lord, that truly we would present ourselves before you as people of praise who recognize the good things that you have done, the way you have blessed us and blessed our nation. And Father, we also lift up those who are far from you, God, that you would do a work in their lives. But right now, God, you want to accomplish so much through the church and we present ourselves here tonight for your instruction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings, neighbors. You're welcome to sit there if you want. They're trained, though, here to sit on the one side. <laughs> Terry's back. How's your knee? Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. First of all, as you know, Sean's not here. Um, my son, who's been going through Matthew, he's on a honeymoon. He's floating around in the Pacific on a cruise. Uh, the church that he goes to in Yucca Valley is um, having a couple's retreat, and they have their couple's retreat on cruises. And so um, some guys in a men's small group got together and paid for him to go, and so it was a a blessing to him. So I thought it would be a good time to take a little bit of a topical twist and look at this election process that there's so much going on, so much going on on Facebook, and there's just all this rhetoric that's happening all the time. We're in the midst of the, uh, we just entered into really the primaries and just had our first uh, one with the Iowa caucus, and then I believe Tuesday is going to be New Hampshire. And um, just to kind of revisit what the Bible says, um, going to get specific in some areas in general and other areas. Uh, I, I don't believe that I have to, not that I'm the center of all wisdom, but I, I have to encourage anybody to vote any particular way because I believe the Bible tells us the direction that we need to cast our vote. And so... As we look, uh, one other thing before I get going on the scriptures, I want to lift Gene Murray up in prayer. I talked to him before service. He's doing okay, but he's sick. He's got that virus that's been going around, and uh, Gene is just such a, a, a blessing. And um, he, he comes in, well, he's not here, so we can talk about him. I don't think he's watching on, uh, on the internet because I don't think he knows how to get on the internet. But, um, you know, Gene, he, we, he comes every Wednesday morning. He's here at 5 o'clock in the morning for the men's study. He helps the guys get the food together. He stays after the study is done, helps clean the church. He's here Thursday night. He's here Sunday morning and Sunday night, serves in children's ministry. Sunday he gets here early. He's here for prayer, the men's prayer and all. And so the least we can do is to lift our brother up at the beginning of service. Father, we do lift up Gene to you, and we just pray, God, that you would touch him and that you would heal him. And Father, just restore him back to full health. And so, Father, you even said that Natalie's come down, his daughter has come down with this as well. And so, Father, again, I just pray that you would heal them. And so, Lord, we just look back to having fellowship with them, with them again. And so, Lord, just in your timing, but Father, we just pray that you would bless him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, when it comes to politicians, when it comes to elections, when it comes to our government, first and foremost, what the Bible tells us to do, and this is going to be peppered throughout my study as a reminder, we are to pray. Prayer has to be the very first thing. We're so quick to complain, and there's a lot to complain about there, but we need to be people of prayer. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exalt first of all that supplications and prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We're also told that in Romans chapter 13 that the governing authority is placed there by the hand of God. And so you can look at some of our governing authorities and wonder, why did God place that person there? Well, a lot of times that person is placed there, even the godless is placed there, simply because God's people haven't stepped up and done what they should be doing. Now, it's our responsibility to vote. 
Matter of fact, even as I was taught as a young kid, you have no excuse, you have no reason to complain if you do not vote. And it doesn't matter if the election's already been decided, and we hear that especially in California, that Californians didn't go out and vote because the election's pretty much been decided. No, you go out and you vote. If you watched the Super Bowl last week, they won in the last minute because they didn't quit, they didn't give up. We are not to quit, we are not to give up, we are to continue to reach forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus. And so, first of all, what is necessary to make an informed decision in the voting booth? For us, it's going to be our primary. It's going to be March 3rd. And so we must have a focus upon the issues and the things that are going on, but also what was the intent of our government at its founding as well? Now, we have been told that our, our, our founding fathers were Christians, were born-again believers, but that's not necessarily so. The majority of them were theists. They believed in the existence of God. They probably even had a fear of God, but not all of them were born again. But my wife and I, I believe it was in 2010, somewhere around that time, we went to Washington, D.C., and we've seen the scriptures there. And the good thing about the scriptures that we saw there, they're carved into the stone. Washington, um, Washington, we went to Mount Vernon, and George Washington's crypt is there, and he's got scriptures that are, are, are carved into the stone at, at the entrance to it, and then so many other places. And so we see the intent of the founding fathers, regardless of where their heart is. Now, I am going to approach this study as if the politicians and even the ones that we are voting for today are not born-again Christians. So this would be the worst-case scenario. I don't know man's heart. I can't tell you who's saved and who's unsaved, but I want to approach it just from the standpoint of what our responsibility is, even if they are not born again. Now, even at the beginning, what was said by those who were in authority? Well, George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Thomas Jefferson said, the Bible is the cornerstone of liberty. Andrew Jackson said, that book, speaking of the Bible, sir, is the rock on which our republic rests. George Washington also said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God and to obey his will. And so I encourage our church, and I haven't been able to get one, the place we usually get the voters' guides from, right now they just still have the 2018 voters' guide posted. And so as soon as I get that, if we get it in time, I'm going to stuff it in all of the bulletins. But what I strongly encourage you to do every election is to have a voter's guide in one hand. You must know what the candidate believes and what his background is because that is how he is going to govern. But you need to hold the Bible in your other hand. And is that which he backs up, which he believes, does it line up with the scriptures? It's important to know that. It's important to understand because the vote you cast, the vote that the church as a whole casts, is a reflection of our heart, it's a reflection of our trust in God, and it's a reflection of our faith in God. And so, so many times we'll look at the most popular candidate, We'll look at the one who says he's going to increase the amount of money in your wallet, but we need to be looking at morality above and beyond everything as far as the decisions made, as far as how that person is to govern. So a voter's guide, it shows us what man thinks and what man believes. The Bible shows us what God commands. And ultimately, we know the one who sits sovereign over the throne of America is our God. And so it's important to understand that. Now, what does the Bible say? Well, we're going to look at some Old Testament scriptures, some Old Testament passages here. And what I want to look at is, is God's intent as he gives instruction to Israel, but we don't cut off half our Bible and throw it away because this is the word of God and it's breathed to us all. And so just as God was ministering in a particular way to Israel, although we are not Israel, but still we see the heart of God. And we see the heart of God towards a nation and the heart of God towards a people. And so Proverbs chapter 14 verse 34 tells us, Righteousness exalts a nation, 
but sin is a reproach to any people here. So four things that I want to look at in this section of Scripture. First of all, there must be the acknowledgement of righteousness. And as I've said, the founding fathers, they acknowledged righteousness. They acknowledged God and God seated upon the throne. Our current president, I don't know where he is at in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but he does acknowledge God. He does acknowledge that God is seated upon the throne. Why is this important? Well, first of all, righteousness, to acknowledge righteousness, it implies sovereignty. It implies somebody who sets the standard. It implies that somebody is watching over and there is somebody more powerful even than the most powerful person in the nation. Why is that important? Because if you're the most powerful person in the nation, if you're the president of the United States, pride can so easily enter in and you forget who it is and whom you are to be representing to the people and how you govern. Secondly, righteousness, it implies, well, it says implies sovereignty first. It's someone sets the standard. But also righteousness implies a standard that we must hold to. And again, our founding fathers, I don't know where they were at with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of them denied him, but they did recognize God. But they realized that the standard would be the word of God. And it's my understanding, I didn't go looking through all the library of law books, but up until the early 1900s, Every law book that came into existence, I've been told, had the Ten Commandments right at the front. So again, there's the standard that God has given mankind, the standard that mankind used. It used to be illegal to commit adultery. It used to be illegal, so some of the immorality that is accepted today was immoral back in the day. And so man would govern according to the commandments given by God. Now, as God was given commandments to Israel, we can look at the commandments and we whittle them down to the Ten Commandments, and that's the moral law, and that's a good thing. But if you, and if you're reading through the Bible bus, we're looking at this even right now, the greater amount of commandments that were given by God were how to govern the nation, how God's people were to be governed. So this is important to God. Why? Because they're his people. They're his people, and he wants to bless his people, but if his people are being led astray, then where does that bring in the blessings of God? So righteousness implies sovereignty, righteousness implies a standard, and righteousness, it implies a straightness. This is a right course of action or behavior. I want, a, I want a, an elected official my heart is to have an elected official who is a born-again believer, who I know is seeking God out, who I know is praying. Again, I don't know where President Trump's heart actually is, but I do know that he is encouraging prayer. I do know he is involved in prayer. He's got people praying for him, even in the White House. And this is of the utmost importance. And so we must make sovereign God our standard the one who sets our direction. And so Joshua, he was a leader of the people. Moses, my servant, is dead. The responsibility fell upon him. And so God told him in chapter 1, verse 7, be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. And why was he not to do that? That you may prosper wherever you go. A prosperous country is going to be built upon following the commands that God has given us, not for righteousness, but because of righteousness. Secondly, along with the acknowledgement of righteousness comes a national reward. Proverbs 14.34, again, righteousness exalts a nation. The word exalts means to be lifted up, or to be made high amongst others. Well, I look at that and I see we, the United States of America, we've got great responsibility. We've got great responsibility because God has already showed us. We have at our birth these sets of standards that were based upon biblical morality. And God has lifted this nation above every nation in the world during our day and, and even before. There were great attacks against this nation. This nation has been involved in many wars, but nonetheless, we prevailed in the midst of it all, and that was simply because God's hand 
was upon us. I was just reading something about D-Day, and it's an absolute miracle that our troops not just survived, but even prevailed on that day. Now, over 3,000 people were killed. 3,000 allied troops, I believe it was about 2,400 Americans perished on those beaches. But nonetheless, they pressed ahead and they were able to prevail, and it was simply by the hand of God. And it's always been by the hand of God that we've been able to continue to push forward and continue to be prosperous as a country. And so God simply has exalted it, but to whom much has been given, much is expected. And God does expect much from us. He expects obedience from us. Now, I'm not talking about the world, because we're going to set the world aside here right now, but how about us? See, the official that is seated in the office is going to be, as I said earlier, a reflection of the hearts of the people. I don't know about his personal life, but at least that which he represents as he's campaigning and, and, and the, the, the promises that are made. And as we, the church, hears those things, are we truly digesting that into our lives? And yes, that particular person, although, again, that person may not be a Christian, he still represents clo- uh, closely what I believe. For me, really, the line is always going to be abortion. And so that, that's number one on the list. If a candidate's for abortion, I will not vote for that candidate. I don't care if he's Republican, Democrat, or whoever he might be. But apart from that, I will examine what his beliefs are and which one is it that closely represents the things that I believe, the things that I hold to. And so exalts a nation, a nation that is lifted up. A nation that is lifted up is first set apart. An easy one to illustrate, because again, in the past 200 years, what nation has been more exalted than the United States of America? But you've got to look at that from the other end as well. So the past 200 years, as we have had a country seeking after the Lord, we've blessed doesn't seem like a country is seeking after the Lord so much anymore. You know, in general, looking at the landscape of the totality of the country. Matter of fact, it seems like God's been pushed out of a lot of different areas. So what does that tell you if the Lord tarries for the next 200 years? And so there, there needs to be a change because just as God has exalted a nation, God will also reduce a nation as well. And as you've probably heard many times, if you read through the Bible to the end in the book of Revelation, no mention of the United States of America. Secondly, an exalted nation is safe. This is why when God does pull back the hedge, when Pearl Harbor happened, I wasn't around back then, but I can imagine the distress that must have been felt. Do you remember how, what you felt on 911? Do you remember, and I I can remember this, I'll just speak for myself, how vulnerable I felt at that moment. This wasn't even a country that was attacking us. This was a group of terrorists. And they're having their way with us, with the World Trade Centers. And, And then all of a sudden you hear that a plane has crashed into the Pentagon, and you don't know to what degree this is going in, and you're thinking, what's next? And what were they telling us? They tell us there was another plane, and they believe that it's headed to the White House. And all of a sudden, this nation that is so strong never really seems to have to worry about all too much because we're isolated, just looking at the globe. Now, all of a sudden, we've been made very vulnerable. And it wasn't just me who felt that way. Do you remember? Do you remember? I remember the day. It was on a Tuesday. And, and I can remember coming into church and you know, trying to make sense of all of this getting phone calls here and there, praying with people, and making the decision to have a prayer meeting that night. And we did. And, and this was before. We didn't have an email prayer chain back then that I recall, but we just kind of let the word get out, and I can't even tell you how we did that, but we had a full sanctuary that night. And we had people that I just kind of opened it up in prayer, and I just gave it over, and it was like two hours we prayed. We prayed for this country. We prayed for the families that were being affected and we just pray that that God would truly protect us we didn't know to what degree this was going to continue on or or anything along those lines and it was a neat thing we saw Congress praying on the steps of Congress and 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 it lasted what a good week and then all of a sudden it was gone and so an exalted nation a nation that God exalts is set apart 
is kept safe. And this is why, again, we can feel so vulnerable. In Psalm 32, verse 7, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with strong deliverance. Selah. And then thirdly, an exalted nation is strong. And again, we've been the strongest nation on the planet. Our military is stronger than any other military. Economically, sure, we have our ups and downs. They all do, but ours is strongly established. Socially, politically, physically, and totally, we are a strong nation. We remain, even though we have rejected God, again, as, as a people in general, we, have been, we still remain the strongest nation in the world. How much longer can we ignore God and expect that to continue? And how much more so should we, again, the church, because make no mistake about it, church, generally speaking, has ignored God in these areas as well. Next thing that I see, <clears throat> along with the acknowledgement of righteousness, <clears throat> excuse me, and that national reward, the next thing I see is the revolt of a nation. It says again in Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin. But sin that so easily, easily enters in. Just as surely as righteousness will exalt a nation, sin will utterly destroy it. It's been a year or two now when we were studying First and Second Chronicles. And we were looking at these various kings, taking the northern kings out of the equation because they never had a good king. They were completely sold out to idols and to the world. But there was the southern kings, and there was a succession of kings that did what was right in the sight of God, and then there were kings that did evil in the sight of God. And, and as the king came in that did right in the sight of God, what did God do? God blessed. And as the ones that did evil in the sight of God, what happened? The nation, the nation was reduced. It, it hurt the nation. Invaders came in and attacks came in, and the nation was no longer as strong as it was before. Why did God allow that to happen? Well, a part of the reason that God allowed that to happen, that we would look and we would see that as an example. If we're going to forsake God, we're going to become very vulnerable as a nation. As we exalt God, we are going to remain strong as a nation. And again... Look at the church in this regard. Look at our own heart in this regard. So just as surely as righteousness exalts a nation, sin destroys a nation. The sin of a nation is basically threefold. Now, United States of America doesn't sin. It's obviously when it's the bigger part of the people. But first of all, it has an undisciplined aim. This is not shooting at God's target of holiness, but at the pride of mankind. That was the desired target of a nation. National sin is an unwise assurance. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He was walking on his walls one day and seeing the vastness of his kingdom and said, look at what I have created. He was cursed from that time. This is what our nation is what God has done. National sin is ungrateful actions that refuse to acknowledge God and just simply believe that mankind has created what we have today and mankind is able to keep what he has today. Well, look at the great crash that we had. When was it? In 2009, our economy went upside down. Nobody was able to stop that. I mean, if, if it was able to be stopped by the, the powers that be in America, they would have stopped it. But it was a landslide that started, and it consumed all that it ran over. In Psalm 59, verse 12, For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride, and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Righteousness, righteousness will exalt a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. And so the last thing that we see in this particular verse here is the reproach of a nation. The reproach of a nation is a curse of a nation. How does God curse a nation? Well, in, in Numbers chapter 6, part of the blessings that Aaron was to proclaim upon the people is that God's face would shine upon the people. For God's face to shine upon the people means that the people had God's attention, that God was watching over them, that God was keeping them. 
The leaders weren't always all that they should be. And then man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. But God was watching over. God was keeping track of the things that were going on. And there's a confidence in that. And so what is the curse of a nation? It's when God turns his face from that nation. You, you want to be the leader? You, you want to push God out? Not that man can push God out, but as man rejects God, God will reject man, and God will step aside. Because of his people, he's still going to have control, and he's going to exercise control, but he still is going to pull back and allow mankind to try to achieve their own blessings in which they never can. And then what happens? The blessings turn into a, a cursing. And when the blessings turn into a cursing, then it's the people who suffer. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the time when the Antichrist is going to come upon the scene. And it says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the following away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. What is it that is restraining the coming of the Antichrist? What is restraining the coming of the Antichrist is the body of Christ. When it says he who is restraining, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. He's God. He's omnipresent. He can't be taken out of the way. But what is the agency through which the Holy Spirit works? The church. It's the body of Christ. We are the salt of the earth. We exercise a purifying influence in this world, in this country. You do so even today, whether you know it or not keeps morality in check to a degree. We're getting more and more towards end time, so things seem like they're spiraling out of control, although the Lord told us that these things would happen. And so, again, what's our main way of influence, of purifying things? We are able to do that in the voting booth. Now, as I said, in Romans chapter 13, we're told that the governing authority is put there by God. How does God put the governing authority there? He works through the body of Christ as they go and as they cast their vote. It's how God moves. And so if we have ungodliness in the offices of this land, the first place we need to look at is in the mirror. We need to first check our hearts. Are we truly seeking God and are we truly desiring and actually representing God as we cast our votes? The reproach of a sinning nation is disgrace, dishonor, and eventual defeat. A pastor named Robert Cobb wrote, America has been great because of God. If we fall, it will be because of our failure to honor God as our sovereign authority and Lord. Must we watch our beloved land become mired in the sloth of compromise and fearfulness? It is the Christian that must stand up for what is right. We must not fear the wrath of man or the condemnation of sinners. They hated Jesus, so if we are the light which exposes their evil, they will hate us as well. What will God's personal message to America be if he spoke to us audibly in this day? I believe he would say, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Let us pray for our land and resolve to do our best to make America great again. This was written before Donald Trump. To make America great again, if we achieve anything, it is God which must accomplish it. So if we don't like the direction that our nation is going, who is the only one who is going to change it? God. How is God going to change it? God is going to change it through you. But we must be a people who are bold, who stand up. Why, why was Paul able to be so bold in his ministry. The apostles, after they were filled with the Spirit, able to be so bold in their ministries because they were bold in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And as we're bold in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, as we're, we will then be emboldened in our ministry in which we reach out to do in this nation. 
And so, again, God still has the church in this country. God is still, you know, in this world. God is still working through the church. Not that which is called the church, but the true church. Who's the true church, Pastor Mike? Calvary Chapel, Ontario? Well, I pray that we are. But the only way that we are and remain to do so, as long as we are connected to Jesus Christ through the word of God, possessing the power of the Holy Spirit. If not, we're just like any other organization that was great at one time, but then has faded away. We've got to stand up and we have to speak God's word. We have to stand for what is biblically correct. And we must continue to move forward and never stop, never quitting. Because in this area, there's no retreat and there's no surrender. One day, God is going to say, that's enough, come up here. But that's his call, and it's not our call. There's nothing sadder than a Christian who has just kind of hung it up, who has just given up, who has quit. And so, far be it that that would ever be said of us. So what are we to do? Well, your private prayer closet is the most powerful place of prayer that there is on this planet. And you must understand the power that exists in prayer. Now, prayer itself, obviously, there's no power. Prayer is benign in that regard. But God lends his power to our prayers. Why? I don't really know other than it keeps us connected with our God who is seated upon the throne. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, But when you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And you have to make the determination, do you believe it? Examine your prayer life. How is your prayer life today? Your prayer life is going to be in direct proportion to what you believe or how you believe that God will honor your prayers. If I told you, hey, if you just speak to God, he's going to give you everything that you need, you would speak to God. Well, the Bible says if you speak to God, he's going to give you everything that you need. Do you believe it? If you believe it, you're going to exercise it. So our, Calvary Chapel, Ontario's responsibility, because we've got just a little bit less than a month, is to corporately and individually pray. Pray that the will of God would come to pass on March 3rd, Election Day, and then November, I think it's 6th, I don't remember, first Tuesday of November, when we have the national elections for president and Congress. And so we must be people pushing forward. Turn over to that famous verse in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Now, it's important when you look at this verse, there's been books written about it contrary to this verse, and I'm thinking, it's a verse in the Bible? You, you know, I don't understand how people attack things. But we must take it in its proper context. And the proper context is the establishment of the altar. What was done upon the altar? It's the place where the sacrifice was offered. And so we must look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to focus upon verse 14, but we'll look at verses 12 through 18. We must focus upon that based upon the altar. Now, not so much for today, the altar that was in the temple, but what is the altar of our day? The altar of our day is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must look at these things in the sight of the grace of God. Now, again, when God's people, as we've just seen, when we ignore God, God takes his hands off. And he allows hardship to come in. He allows trials and tribulations on a national scale and on a personal scale. And it's God's desire that we would get back in line to what he would have. So, verse 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the altar. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence amongst my people. And so he's talking about trials that he has allowed to enter in. And so back then and, and really even today, there, there's been locusts in, uh, in the Middle East. I, I, I can't remember. I think it was Egypt. I, I don't remember. I was reading about it earlier. But there's swarms of locusts even still today. And guess what? They couldn't do anything about it then, and they can't do anything about it today. 
But he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And so he's talking about prayer made in that place. It's prayer based upon the sacrifice. And so their prayer is based upon the sacrifice that covers sin. Our prayer is based upon the sacrifice that has done away with our sin as far as the east is from the west. The sacrifice, the offering of sacrifice, in that is also the desire for repentance. And so there's a desire for change, and God says, I'll honor this prayer. Verse 16, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house. I have set it apart that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgment, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I coveted in, coveted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. Walk before me as your father David walked. You can look at David. I've read the stories. He didn't walk very well. There's murder, there's adultery, there's disobedience. There, there was quite a bit. I imagine if we looked in all of our lives, we would see a lot of those things as well. Anybody here who thinks they're not a murderer, if you even hated anybody, Jesus said, then it's as if you have murdered them. If you've ever lusted in your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery. So none of us can rise above King David or consider ourselves above King David. But what did King David do? Why was King David considered to be a man after God's own heart? Because he was quick to repent and to get back in line to where he needed to be. And so Second Chronicles 7.14 is the context is essential. It's based upon the sacrifice. It's based upon a spirit of repentance. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so if we want change in this nation, it's got to start at the church. Change is not change for the good, for the godly, I should say, change that we would head towards a godly direction it has to start at the church it's possible it may have already started in a good way again we see prayer in the white house that we haven't seen in quite a while abortion is now on the decrease i don't know about the amount of abortion but now there's a lot of movements towards the reduction of abortion or even the abolishment of abortion if you look, one of the greatest sins that Israel committed as they turned towards um, idolatry was the sacrificing of their children. We sacrifice our children at the altar of sexual freedom, and it's just been a national disgrace. So many other things, so many other issues, but that's one of the, in my heart, again, that's one of the biggest ones. And so we have Second Chronicles 7.14, one of those neat, fuzzy, anthem types of scriptures. We like to quote it, display it, and refer to it, but it's a prideful people who ignore the details of it. And so, again, to whom much has been, give, much has been given, much is expected. And we have this verse, and if it's one of those that we're quick to quote, again, we have it displayed, we're even knowledgeable of it, we need to dig into it, and we need to understand the reality of it. And so first is the most important word in this verse, and it's the very first one. Smallest one and the first one, if, if. And so what this tells me is God is giving us a choice here. He's not just saying that he's going to heal the land or you know whatever it might be, take the trial away. He's saying if. That means the responsibility, it's ours. This means God will move when we act. And actually, it's an if-then verse. What do we need to do? Well, God will exalt a nation to the degree that it acknowledges its dependency upon him and seeks righteousness. And so if, if who? If the world? It doesn't say if the world. It says if my people. If my people? If my people who are called by my name, what do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. 
We call ourselves the people of God, children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, these are the ones who God is talking about. If my people who are called by my name, we need to quit waiting around for the world to do the right and good and godly thing. We need to rise up and do those things. We talk about bringing prayer back into school. Well, I was talking to our mayor, who is a born-again believer, and I do the invocation at the city hall. I'm going to be doing it in mid-March is the next time. And we were talking about it, and he goes, what happened to you? And I said, well, what do you mean, what happened to me? He goes, you were doing quite a few invocations, and it stopped. I go, well, they stopped calling me and asking me. And he, I won't get into the politics of it all, but he says, we get every whacked-out person up there. We get people that are praying to Mother Nature and people, you know, you're just getting universalist and you're just getting every, every, you know, you're getting Islam in there and you're getting everything in there. And so we, we so are concerned with prayer in school, but understand if prayer goes back into school, you're going to have every heretical thing represented there. Prayer, don't worry about prayer in school, worry about prayer back in the home. Worry about prayer in the area where you have control. Worry about prayer within your personal life. Worry about prayer in, again, the areas that you are able to encourage and bring proper prayer, prayer prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's prayer that's going to be effective. Don't expect the world to stop abortion. Why would they? Because they're more concerned about their worldly pleasures. Don't expect the world just to quit divorcing or to prevent premarital sex or whatever it might be, but have a full expectation that the church would stop doing these things. I've seen all of these things within the body of Christ, and it's a shameful thing. If my people who are called by my name, God's people have to start acting like God's people and take the lead in these things and stop waiting on the world. Revival, revival starts in the body of Christ. Even deeper than that, revival starts in the people of Christ. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if pride is the original, original sin and really the source of all sin, and humility is the opposite of pride, then we must get to the core of the matter. We must know that we are a people who have humbled ourselves. The first step is salvation, the realization that I could do nothing about my sinful nature and my sinful ways. Maybe I could stop for a season, but then sooner or later it would come back and it would come back with a vengeance. Again, Humility is one of the hardest things that we have to overcome when we're sharing the gospel because I need to convince this person that I'm sharing the gospel that he has been wrong all of his life. Or I need to convince him that he has been ignoring truth all of his life. And he is going to have to come to that place that I was wrong, that I have been disobedient. And that's the hard part. It was a hard part in our lives, but the Holy Spirit will enable people to get there, but there must be a humbling of self. Second step in humbling ourselves is to find out what he wants and to do it regardless of what we think or what we desire. If you're not doing what God wants you to do, you'll find the source of your disobedience is pride. We so think that we have a better idea. First Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, that we would make evaluations of where we're at with the Lord. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Notice how that just keeps on coming up. God's trying to get this across to us. Prayer is a precious privilege given to us from God. It's part of the reason that Jesus died upon the cross so it would open the avenues of prayer. That the idea behind prayer is, isn't to convince God, again, I even asked the question, I think it was on Thursday night, I don't really call, why pray? God's going to do what he wants to do. Well, that's true. God is going to do what he wants to do, what is necessary to do, but prayer gets us on the same page as the Lord. So if the direction that you are praying isn't happening, then go in a different direction. Understand that God is going to speak to you and God is going to guide you in your prayer life. I don't know where I found this acronym for prayer, but think of it along this way. Pray, patiently requesting, asking, and yielding to God. Patiently, P, 
R is requesting, A is asking, and Y, yielding to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to do it without ceasing. Start to pray and never stop praying. Fourth thing necessary for God to exalt our nation, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Once again, there's that concept. Seek the attention of God. If you are serious about the healing and preservation of our land and you realize your place in the process, then you will come before the face of God and report for duty. So part of being in the face of God is the acknowledgement of responsibility, that God does watch over me, that God is there and God has commanded me and my Lord oversees me. And, and there's never a time when, I, when God's not watching me. There's never a time when I have this time apart from the sight of God. And so what this does is it, it encourages me to fulfill my responsibility. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, Isaiah said, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Where was Isaiah at that time? He was before the face of God. Where do you find the face of God? By placing your face in the word of God. It's then, it's that place that you go to recognize his will and his desire and the responsibility that you have. The last thing necessary for God to exalt our nation, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Again, that's, he's speaking to my people. He's telling my people to turn from their wicked ways. If you're one of his people and you humble yourself, if you pray and you seek your face, then you're going to realize the wicked ways that exist within your lives. What's a wicked way? It's our ways that are contrary to his ways. We can have our top ten sins, our dirty dozen, nasty nine, whatever they might be, but it can all be lumped on our ways apart from God's ways. If you turn from them, he will bless you. It's sin that chokes off God's blessings to mankind. We're told in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And the one thing, the major obstacle is pride. So we make the best determination we can in elections. What does the candidate represent? There's a lot of candidates today, even some in the Republican Party, that have kind of, for the purpose of votes, have kind of moved towards the abortion thing. I can't vote for anybody that would perpetuate it. Can't vote for anybody who will enable abortion, killing of an unborn child. And so sometimes it feels like we're voting for the worst, I'm sorry, the best of the worst. But don't worry about it. Worry about the things that God has set before us. God has commanded us to vote. Which is the one who would best represent? Don't vote for the one you think is going to win. I'll tell you how, what a man of little faith that I am. I worked the last election. We were a polling place every year. The last pres presidential election, I worked it. And I was just thinking there's just no way that President Trump is going to win. Well, Donald Trump is going to win. I just didn't think, I voted for him, but I didn't think he was going to win. And so I'm, I'm working the election, but I've got my cell phone, and I'm looking at these returns starting to come in, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're even proclaiming Hillary as, as the winner. Then all of a sudden, the tide changes. It's fourth quarter. There's two minutes left, and here he comes, and it's going, and all these states are, are voting for him. And there were these two young girls that were college age that were working there, and they were as liberal as liberal can be. And they were already celebrating Hillary's victory. And you should have seen their face by the end of the night. They were in utter shock. I don't mean to put them down. I don't know who they are or what their names are today. I just don't remember. But I just see the work that God can do. So is Donald Trump St. Donald? 
Well, that's easy to answer. No, he's far from it. He's an imperfect person. He's a very imperfect person. But what he is, is the man who most closely represents the beliefs that I see in the Bible. And so that being the case, just think of it this way. If he is truly, in fact, representing the beliefs that we have in the Bible, don't you think there would be spiritual attack, especially if he stands up during these darkened times? Have we ever had a president that has been more attacked than our current president? Three times they've brought in major charges against them. They've done major investigations against him, and he's come clean every single time. And again, I'm not advocating some of the things he says. I heard him say some obscenity the other day. I'm not advocating everything that he does. I'm just encouraging you to vote for the candidate that most closely represents the word of God in their platform. And if we do that, we can stand before God with a clear conscience and say, Lord, I did the best I could with what I had. Not voting for the man or woman who I think is going to make me most comfortable, not the one who's going to put the most money in my bank account, but the one who most closely represents our holy God. Father, I just pray, Lord, that we would be a people who would look past our needs and our desires, because, Father, it's you who said that you would provide our needs. We ought not to look at any candidate as being God, because obviously they're not. And so, Father, all good things come from you. But again, the candidate that we put in office is a reflection of the people and the state of the people. And so, Father, I just pray that we would be found faithful in the areas that you have called us to be found faithful. I pray that the church would truly be the church, that we would rise up, Lord, and we would represent you in all areas of our life and how much more so in the voting booth. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us this nation. I do pray for this nation, this nation that has been so great, Lord, and this nation that even has sent missionaries across the world. It now needs to be evangelized even today. And, Father, I pray that we would go forth in it, making disciples through it. And so, Father, just fill us with your spirit. Enable us, Lord, to be the catalyst of change, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all stand, please. Next Saturday, we are having our Valentine's dinner, and tonight is going to be the last time to sign up. I think we've got a, like 60 people who are signed up, real close to that. Um, or, if you would like, we need help serving that night as well. And at the sign-up table, there's a sign-up sheet for anybody that would like to help serve, and it would be a blessing if you could come and help us out. Other than that, guys, have a great week. Remember, pray.